Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages. Today, we're discussing Lesson 2, Patriarchs and the Promise. Our last lesson, Creation and the Fall, focused on the first three chapters of Genesis. We discovered that God is both a powerful creator and a loving father who made humans in his image to rule over the created world with him. He blessed the first pair with abundance. He set out to protect them from evil by forbidding them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he planted for them a garden temple, Eden, where he could come down and dwell in their midst and they could worship and glorify him. Tragically, under the influence and deception of the serpent, God's image bearers ate from that tree and sin entered the world. The rest of the Bible is God's response to humanity's fall. The whole of biblical history can be divided into three major sections, patriarchal, mosaic, and Christian. The Christian age was inaugurated by the death of Jesus and the arrival of the Messianic kingdom. The Mosaic age began during the days of Moses and lasted until Christ's work was accomplished. The age of the patriarchs preceded both Jesus and Moses. During the days of the patriarchs, God worked with families rather than nations. Each family had a leader who's called the patriarch. Patriarchs served as tribal princes and priests who built altars, offered sacrifices, and communicated God's will to the rest of their clan. The days of the patriarchs are recorded in the book of Genesis. And really, there are sort of six men whose lives outline the whole of the book. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and last, Joseph. In the previous lesson, we talked about Adam and how his actions brought sin into God's good world. Well, sin continued to spread after the humans were cast out of Eden. Genesis chapters 4 through 11 outline what happens to humans when they live in accordance to their own wisdom and reject God's rule. Adam's firstborn son, Cain, killed his younger brother Abel in a fit of rage and jealousy. Cain's descendants grew exceedingly evil and violent, and their influence corrupted the entire human race until the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, Genesis 6 and verse 5. Noah was the only man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God, says Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. God decided to flood the earth and restart the human race through Noah and his family. But as the human population regrew after the flood, evil prevailed once again. The apex of human rebellion is graphically depicted in Genesis 11 with the construction of the Tower of Babel. There we read, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we will make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, 
we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. The intention of the Babel builders was to make a name for themselves, meaning they desired fame, notoriety, honor, and glory. Instead of using their newfound technology and unity to glorify God, they wanted for themselves that which was reserved for Yahweh alone. The serpent tempted Eve by telling her the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would give her wisdom and that that would allow her to be her own God. Cain, the tyrants who lived in Noah's day, and the builders of the Babel Tower all wanted the same thing. They wanted to be their own gods and to rule by their own wisdom. So we see that the serpent's work continued long after Eden and in fact continues to this present hour. The Lord responded to the Babylonian rebellion with a threefold punishment. Number one, he confused their language so that the people would never unite against him again. Number two, he scattered the people across the world. And number three, he focused all of his redemptive effort on one man and his family, and that man's name is Abraham. Moses would later comment on the events of Babel by describing it as the disinheritance of the nations. When the Most High appropriated the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. The Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob, his allotted share, Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. Now, Moses says that God disinherited the nations, giving the Gentiles over to serve their false gods. He chose for himself Israel as his possession. But as Genesis 12 will reveal, this doesn't mean that God permanently abandoned the nations. Rather, he set them aside for a time to focus all his redemptive work on Abraham and his family. Abraham is one of the most important figures in all the Bible. His ancestry is recounted at the end of Genesis 11, but his narrative picks up in chapter 12. And it's really impossible to understate his significance. Genesis 1 through 11 documents humanity's descent into total rebellion against the Creator. These chapters show how the human race will always live when sin reigns and draws human uh, draws humanity away from the paths of godliness. Genesis 12 is the turning point. The life of Abraham begins to set forth the trajectory that God will take for the next 2,000 years in order that he might bring his rescue plan into full effect. Now, Abraham is introduced to us when he's already 75 years old, and these are the first words recorded that God ever spoke to the man in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the call of Abraham. Now, two important facts about Abraham were presented back in chapter 11. 
Number one, Abraham and his family were living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was deep in the heart of Babylonian country. The word Chaldeans is just another word for Babylonians. And two, Abraham was married to a woman named Sarah, but she was childless because she was not able to conceive, says Genesis 11 and verse 30. So it comes as quite a shock when Genesis 12 records God telling Abraham to leave his country, his people, and even his family behind to go to a land that God was going to show him. And even more shocking that God would say, I will make you into a great nation. So how could a childless man with a barren wife be made into a great nation, especially since they were already fairly advanced in years? The call of Abraham contains three essential promises that are going to come up again and again in the book of Genesis and beyond. Those promises include land, a nation, and a universal blessing. The land is going to be identified pretty quickly. It's called Canaan, and it would eventually become the land of Israel. The nation would later be revealed as the nation of Israel, which would be named after Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name is going to be changed to Israel. But that last promise, this is the one that God would continue to unfold and develop over the next 2,000 years. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Now, remember, God sent away the nations for a time, but promised to bless them through Abraham. So how could one man who was about to move to a foreign country where he owned no land and whose wife was barren bring blessings to all the peoples of the earth? Well, the answer to that question would not really be fully revealed for millennia. Instead, the patriarchs had to live by faith, by trusting in God rather than walking by sight. In fact, we learn that Abraham was a man of tremendous faith. Now, let's talk about faith. Biblical faith is comprised of three key components, knowing and acknowledging who God is, trusting in his divine plan and purposes, and submitting to his sovereign authority and will. Biblical faith is essentially allegiance to God, faithfulness, the relentless pursuit of God's will. When Abraham arrived in Canaan, the first thing he did was began to build altars to the one true creator God. And these altars to Yahweh were built directly in opposition to the pagan worship sites of the Canaanites. When Abraham was following the Lord, everything was going great. His life was perfectly on track as it should be. However, when Abraham was uh, deviating from that plan, we know, of course, he was far from sinless, calamity often came upon him and beset his family. And so Abraham, over the course of many years, had to learn what it truly meant to trust God in everything, to trust God in everything he did to allow for God's will to play out as God desired. That was a hard lesson for Abraham, a hard lesson for all of us to learn. Now, eventually, even though he had to overcome many trials, Abraham and Sarah did have a son in their old age by the miraculous help of God. The Lord gave them the boy named Isaac and announced that he was the son of promise. 
But there's a little bit of a plot twist in Genesis 22 when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you, Genesis 22 and verse 2. Now, as we read this account, we know that God is only testing Abraham. But man, for the patriarch, this was life and death. Of course, he knew that God had made a promise, and he knew that when God made a promise, his word could not be broken. So Abraham took his son to the mountain to offer him to God. Years later, millennia later, Hebrews 11 and verse 19 tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So Abraham's trust and confidence in God was so profound, he was willing to go through with this sacrifice and to offer Isaac there on the mountain because he believed God would just resurrect him back to life. Because after all, this is the son of promise, and the promise that God made to Abraham had to be passed down to his son because what God has promised must be fulfilled. Now, we know that God did not allow Abraham to kill Isaac. God detests human sacrifice. This is the universal testimony of Scripture. The Lord provided a ram to substitute for Isaac as the offering, and father and son worshiped God there on the mountain. The Lord declared, I swear by myself that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Genesis 22 verses 16 through 18. Abraham, of course, eventually died, and the blessing passed to Isaac, who was the son of promise. When Isaac died, his son Jacob received the blessing. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he fathered 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Over and over again, as the promise transferred to the next generation, God said, he would surely bring these blessings to pass because of the promises he made to Abraham, the promise of land, the nation, and the blessing for all humanity. Over and over, in spite of the many failures and setbacks recorded in the lives of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, God reiterated his promise time and time again. Now, before Abraham died, God gave him a vision of the future. He told Abraham that his offspring would indeed eventually inhabit the land of Canaan, but before the promise would be fulfilled, they would have to live as strangers in a country not their own, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated there, says Genesis 15, 13. God promised to deliver them from slavery and bring them back to this promised land, and so the last section of the book of Genesis reveals how this prophecy began to be fulfilled. One of Israel's 12 sons was a man named Joseph. Joseph was his father's favorite child. And in jealousy, his older brothers sold him to slave traders who took him to Egypt. 
God was with the lad, however, enabling Joseph to interpret dreams and visions. And after he interpreted Pharaoh's dream of a coming famine, Joseph was made vice-regent of Egypt. By the way, the elevation of Joseph's status to being side by side with Pharaoh really harkens back to God's plan for the human race in Genesis 1. God was the creator king, but he elevated the humans, his image bearers, to be his vice regents to rule over the earth. So Joseph, who was a righteous follower of God, is actually elevated to this position at Pharaoh's right hand to do in Egypt what God had decreed the humans ought to be doing over the whole earth. So we see this little interplay between the beginning and the end of the book of Genesis. Now, Joseph was given a mission by Pharaoh, and that was to save Egypt from starvation and death. And boy, he succeeded in exactly that. But because of the famine, Joseph's older brothers, with whom he had become estranged, obviously, had to travel from Canaan down to Egypt to buy grain. And that's when they learned that their brother had become a powerful Egyptian leader, and they begged him for forgiveness. Now, Joseph amazingly, beautifully, graciously forgave his brothers. And he even said to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50 and verse 20. The entire family of Israel relocated to Egypt to survive the famine. The prophecy given to Abraham, of course, is being partially fulfilled, beginning to be fulfilled here at the end of Genesis as his descendants are now living in a foreign land. But their slavery and eventual deliverance from this land is yet to come. We read about that in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. But as we now conclude, we're going to make some key observations about God and humans and uh, what God's plan is for the human race, just as we did at the end of lesson one. And the first thing we learn here in this lesson is about God's desire to work with humans. When you read Genesis, you're reminded that humans are pretty poor partners, at least from God's perspective. Uh, we make a lot of mistakes. We go our own way. We decide from time to time that our wisdom ought to supersede the wisdom and revelation of God, yet in spite of all of those failures on the, part of the, on the part of the patriarchs, God persists. It's his desire to work through human partners like Abraham to bring about his will on the earth. We also learn about judgment in the book of Genesis and how judgment is God's response to human rebellion, not human mistakes, oh, those happen all the time, but human rebellion. We see that in the flood. We see that in the scattering of Babel. We learn something about faith in the book of Genesis. We learn that faith is knowing and trusting God, submitting to his authority. Faith is often imperfect. It needs to grow and develop as it did in Abraham's own life, but it is about trusting and following God, about relentlessly pursuing his will. We learn about God's promises, that when God makes a promise, it is unbreakable. The word of God about the future is sure and certain, and if God says it will come to pass, it must and will come to pass. 
And one of the great lessons about God in the book of Genesis has to do with how he works in the world. And sometimes you might hear Christians use the word providence to describe this. This is God's work uh, behind the scenes, as it were, to accomplish his desired outcome. And it's this is beautifully demonstrated in the life, the life of Joseph, who uh, may not have realized that God was working to this eventual end, but eventually saw as he looked back on his own life that it was God who was moving things in a particular direction for his desired outcome. The age of the patriarchs highlights sort of the extremes of humanity. Without God, humans devolve into evil, violence, hatred, wickedness, destruction. God well-ordered the heavens and the earth and brought, filled them with abundance and life and beauty. And humans, when we go our own way, we destroy all that. We bring violence and hatred and destruction to God's good and beautiful world. But when God's guidance is accepted by faith, followers of God now can accomplish amazing things for themselves, their families, their communities, their world, and even the future, all with God's help. The Lord promised Abraham All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that shook the earth when the Messiah shed his blood and conquered death and the grave, when the good news was proclaimed by eyewitnesses on Pentecost, when men and women put their faith in Abraham's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus, and when the blessings of God's eternal purposes were and continued to be poured out over all the world, then... God's blessings rain down from above. God enables his image bearers as broken and weak as we are to finally and fully accomplish his will. The promise of blessed rescue was made to Abraham and it's available today to all who will live by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.